0: Welcome to a special edition of the Darden Admissions Podcast. I'm your host, Brent Twitty, and you are listening to a new episode. On this episode of the podcast, we return to our ongoing spotlight on faculty here at the Darden School of Business, a series that we call Office Hours, with a conversation with Tim Laster. Tim is a member of the technology and operations management area here at the Darden School of Business. And as you'll also learn from this conversation, he is an alum. Tim graduated from the MBA program, as well as the PhD program. Here at the Darden School of Business. In this conversation, we talk with Tim about his background, what brought him to Darden as a student, and what brought him back to Darden to teach as a professor of practice. We talk about some of his courses, including operations strategy and emerging topics in technology and operations, and Darden Worldwide course he leads to Germany, as well as an executive education program that he's been developing. Uh, with Denny Kim here at the Darden School of Business around AI, blockchain, and digital assets. This is a wide-ranging conversation, all about, well, operations and technology. I think you're really gonna enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, here's my interview with Tim Lassiter. Well, welcome everyone uh, to our latest installment of Office Hours, our ongoing faculty spotlight series. So pleased to be joined today by a member of our operations faculty, professor of practice, Tim Lasser. Uh, This is uh, the last Office Hours that we have on the books for now, uh, but we will be adding more conversations. I will just plug our Spotify playlist that's out there with all of the Office Hours conversations that we've hosted. There are over 20 at this point. And, of course, we will share uh, the recording of this conversation both on our podcast, Experience Darden and the Exec MBA podcast, as well as on the Vimeo channel. Um, So I'm going to stop the chat for now, and I will just uh, note, if you have questions as we go along here, please feel free to ask via the q and I'll keep an eye on the Q&A, but the, the focus of this conversation is really to, to learn more about Tim, his background, talk about some of the classes he teaches, some of the things that he's interested in. Um, if you saw our email promotion uh, for this event, there's lots of exciting topics related to technology and operations that we're going to get into today. So Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Thrilled to be here. All right, well, we always start with the same first question. Uh, tell us a little bit more about you. Who are you and what's your background?
1: Well, I am a professor of practice at the Darden School. I, uh, my links to Darden date back uh, almost 40 years now. I came, well, over 40 years now. I came here as an MBA student in 1982, graduated in 84, fell in love with Charlottesville and Darden, and it took me a little over a dozen years to, to find an excuse to be able to move back here. Uh, which I did to work on my doctorate and uh, joined the faculty. Um, in the interim, I was a uh, uh, well, I was in industry at a fiber optic cable company, a Siemens corning joint venture. And then with Booz Allen Hamilton, I was a partner in the commercial side of the business um, and joined the faculty when I finished my PhD in 2003, maybe something like that. And I've been on the faculty for uh, 20 years now.
0: Some of our listeners may have picked up on the fact that you did your MBA here at Darden. So what appealed to you about Darden? How'd you end up here for your MBA?
1: Actually, I thought you were going to say they would pick up on my southern accent that I talk funny, uh, which I didn't cover. I kind of started my story with Darden. So I am from Covington, Georgia, a small town in um, uh, east of Atlanta, Georgia. So um, this accent is I have an accent that no one claims at this point. So people from Georgia think I talk funny and. People from north of the Mason-Dixon line certainly think I talk funny as well. Uh, but I came to Darden, um, actually, I was living in Northern Virginia, working in a small consulting firm. Uh, I had a plan to be to be uh, Perry Mason, so I'm going to date myself even further for those of you who didn't watch black and white television. Uh, Perry Mason was um, one of the early lawyer-based TV shows, and he got people to break down and confess in the stand, and I thought, "Wow, that's fun! Arguing with people and getting people to break down and admit they're wrong would be exciting." Um, I discovered that's not what lawyers actually do. They uh, uh, and uh, I also discovered that my GMAT scores were better than my LSAT scores. Um, so my JD MBA plans turned into um, pure MBA here at Darden. Um, I was in Northern Virginia and it fell in, you know, loved the state and decided that would be a good good fit. I guess, and they accepted me as well. Maybe that's another important reason it works out.
0: That does, that does help. Um, so you also decided to pursue a PhD. Um, I'm curious. I was interested. I didn't know about your interest in law to shift to MBA, but how did, how did you land on, yes, I now want to do a PhD?
1: Um, so I guess one thing about me is I tend to have a scattered life in sections but usually a long-term objective. And I often resort out the objectives to realize they were bad or needed to be pivoting, I guess, in the, the modern language. Um, so I pivoted away from wanting to be a lawyer when I realized that really wasn't a good fit for me. Um, when I left Darden, I went to work with, a, well, what, which was a startup in 1984 in Hickory, North Carolina, uh, making fiber optic cable. And it was Siemens, the German company, and Corning who invented fiber were had purchased a small cable company in North Carolina um, to build out the fiber optic cable business. And that is in the year when AT&T was just breaking, been broken up. Uh, so we started having competition in long distance and a lot of long distance lines were being laid for fiber optic at that time. It was, you know, instead of massive cables this big around, you could put a small cable that could carry carrying capacity of a uh, of uh, So many more calls on a single fiber, um, and so I, um, I, I I ended up there, choosing between actually I think it was choosing between going to IBM and being part of a large bureaucracy at the time, uh, a huge company, or doing a startup on my own with my former um, mentor and boss in the consulting that I had worked with before I joined. He, he printed up business cards with Tim Lasseter, president uh, for me, with the new company we were going to form. Uh, it almost got me, but didn't quite. And so, c was kind of in between. There were probably only, when I joined, uh, maybe fewer than 300 salaried employees in the in the company. So, it was small enough you could have a big impact, but also large enough with big backers that I would get a paycheck, since I had a a newborn son at the time as well. So the logic of finding finding balance between extremes is part of who I am as well. So it was a good fit.
0: All right, and um, somebody who obviously has deep interest in operations. How did you how did you land on this particular topic? Is that have you always been that kind of person? Look at a process and figure out how to improve it? Uh, not
1: at all. Um, so actually, I was focused in finance at Darden, uh, and when I joined. Secor. Um, I was in the operations controllers department, a business analyst in the operations controllers department, uh, along with a colleague who, by the way, uh, from Darden, who by the way is the chief innovate, chief of innovation at Dar- at Corning now. Uh, he stayed; I left, but uh, he's done much better than I have probably on, on many dimensions. Uh, but uh, he and I were in the business control this operations controllers department, and my bo- I had. We've been there been there a year and a year plus or something. I had an analyst working for me, and my boss at the time was, well, I guess there was a boss between me and the guy who hired me by that time because we were expanding pretty rapidly during those days. And I had one person reporting to me, and he came to me and said, "You know, if you really want to be a manager, you, know, you could stay in this finance path and you could you know grow up, you could be a controller and a plant controller, or you could maybe be a CFO of a company someday." but you're really not gonna manage a lot of people. If you really wanna learn about managing people, maybe there's this opportunity for you to work in the plant as a shift supervisor on the night shift. And you'd have 40 people, hourly people working for you in the factory at night. Uh, and I said, I probably, I don't recall the conversation explicitly, but I'm willing to bet I said, is there a pay increase involved with it? Because I did have a small child at home. Um, and uh, the answer was no. It was a lateral move from a level structure, but I would get night shift premiums. So I'd get paid to work the 12-hour shift, two days on, two days off, three days on, and then the opposite of that the next week. And um, I took him up on it. And I uh, my, I and one other salaried worker ran the plant from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. with um uh, between the two of us and the maintenance crew, there were probably a hundred hourly employees and the two of us were the only two salaried people in charge of the place. Um, And it was during the days of world-class, what's called world-class manufacturing before it was called lean in the 1980s. But we were learning from Japanese, the Japanese at the time were having their impact on the automotive industry. And I was reading books about just in time and world-class manufacturing and uh, trying to apply it on the factory floor and learned that uh I enjoyed it and uh uh you know spent well, I spent probably a year on the night shift before I became uh got on the day shift as a quality control well quality assurance supervisor and um I guess to finish the link of the story uh I also started teaching uh night class in finance international actually it was international finance with a local local college uh, even though I probably only left the country once in my life at that point uh, and twice maybe. And then, uh, but I did have finance from Darden. And uh, then I actually taught a course on bills of material at the community college when we were putting in a new, what we would call an ERP system today, enterprise resource planning, but it was material requirements planning back then. And I discovered I really loved the teaching and came up with a plan that I would, um, go into consulting for three years and then become a professor at Darden. That became my long-term objective uh, and started applying, interviewing with consulting firms on, to get me. And part of the logic of that is I taught the professors who consulted on the side, brought interesting things into the classroom with their experience. Um, and I also knew that, again, that was incremental income to compensate for, uh, academia is not the highest paid profession in the world. Um, so it was part of a, an idea, and I started uh, searching into consulting firms at that time, with a long term plan to be at
0: Darden. And you mentioned having some experience teaching at community college. Obviously, you teach at Darden. What's what's interesting to you about teaching? What, what's drawn you to this path?
1: Um. Well, I guess what is interesting about teaching is is learning. Um, simply put, I um, I I love to. F- learn new things and teaching is one of the best ways to learn something. Well, you have to, you know, stay ahead, have a step ahead of the students. It's not like we're, if all I was doing was telling war stories from my past experience, then it would probably not nearly as fun for me or the students. Frankly, Um, I try to blend those with um, new things I'm learning and new chances to talk to people and write new cases and learn new things and talk to smart people about interesting problems. Um, It is, it is what it is also what attracted me to consulting uh, team you know someone is someone's paying you a million dollars to solve a problem. it's usually a very interesting problem and you're gonna have to learn things to figure out solutions to it um, and you get to do that with a team of bright people
0: And what's it like to to teach through the case method? Um...
1: <clears throat> well, I
0: am. I am
1: probably, so I am not one of the best uh, case method teachers here. We have some phenomenal ones uh, because I'm probably, <laughs> I enjoy the debate much like the Perry Mason story of seeing people break down. I, I don't want people to break down, but I do like the interactive exchange and I, I tend to find myself getting into the exchange versus facilitating it at times and getting the students to do the debate, which is the right way to do uh, case method. I try, and it does happen in my class, but I, it is very hard for me just to sit back and not pitch in. Um, but that is the fun part, is just the, the intellectual stimulation of why and, and the willingness to listen to why not, right, is um, you know, breaking a hubris mindset, getting a different perspective, getting someone to bring something to bear that you hadn't thought about is what's powerful. I like to say the best cases at Darden, the best cases to teach is one where 60 students show up in the classroom, half of them have decided one of the two options, the other half have chosen the other option. And you begin a discussion and what you realize is that each half has kind of focused on a different set of things. Maybe there were two or three things they thought about and factored in in their decisions and that's what drove them to come to a conclusion. Over the course of the class, we ultimately realized there were eight different things we should have thought about collectively. By looking at all the different views from different people, now whether people change their minds is a whole nother issue or not. At the end of the class, is I don't yeah I don't try to teach aha cases where there was a right answer and wow it is okay. Here's you know here are the trade-offs. Here's the decisions, you know, the things we were looking at, and at least thinking about the trade-offs as broadly as possible because you now have this diverse set of views about you know how other people thought about the problem.
0: Given all of that, I know you've written. Uh, many cases. You know, how do you think about writing a case uh, with the discussion in mind? Um.
1: Interesting. So I've written a lot of cases. So in the early years, a lot of my cases were cases that I picked up and just dis- usually disguised from my um, from my consulting experience, um, because my my consulting was operations was doing operation strategy. So and my original courses were much more around were operation strategy and competitive cost analysis. That was, a, I guess, the finance link that I have placed through there. Understanding the economics and the cost drivers is a big part of making choices. Um, So that was the early days. And I guess then I started looking at interesting companies. Uh, An example was I have a case on Zappos where I wrote a letter to Tony Shea because I was following Zappos after Amazon had acquired them. I got very interested in internet retail, was another one of my shifts of focus over the years. And uh, he said yes. And I flew out to Las Vegas and interviewed him and wrote a case on Zappos' call centers, which, unlike most call centers, aren't, wasn't focused just on getting people off the phone as fast as possible and efficiency. It was about engaging with the customer. We could still use it to teach queuing theory. So you still had to do the same math, but um, it made you step back and think about a different way to what the purpose of a call center would be, not just a low cost thing, a call center you had to manage. And then over time, I now have a new digital operations course and I run into interesting people. I have a new case on uh, wearable robotics that I ran into someone at a, a grocery shop, a conference in Las Vegas. And she has come and demoed this equipment that people in a distribution center uh, can strap it on and you strap it around your legs and it helps you takes 30 to 40% of the, the weight off in lifting. And there are people whose jobs like working at a distribution center, like Chewy or beverages, beer, or uh, soft drinks that are lifting 30 to 40,000 pounds a shift every day. So if you can imagine taking 30 to 40% of that load off, how much more that you know, improves their lives uh, over the over the course of the day so they can go home and not be exhausted in pieces. So um, I find things, I um, run into people and if it's interesting, we we write a case to uh, what are the problems they're thinking about and we try to frame it up that way. I'm usually, I guess I usually pick it up around an interesting company rather than trying to target a particular subject or problem, I guess. I hadn't thought about it that until you asked me, Brett.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's interesting to hear your perspective because I mean, just even even in light like of your career, right—the shift from finance to uh, you know, managing a plant shift and looking at sort of lean methodology to now—all these conversations about tech and robotics—it must be amazing to have that sort of perspective, that that long view of where things have been and where they are now. Well, arguably. But whether I am deep in any of those subjects is
1: is a, a matter for debate. There are things that I did get recognized at a level, but for the most part, I am uh, I am more interesting in breadth than than depth, uh, and I think the synthesis. And frankly, that is what an MBA degree is all about. Is you know the world's best engineer at figuring something out are the best financial analysts at doing cost cost estimating maybe. Um, not what, it's not what we're gonna teach you how to be as an MBA, but we're gonna teach you how to, to integrate all these different perspectives and step back and think about how all the pieces fit together. Um, and yeah, and that's what I think I find interesting.
0: You're also someone who has an interest in technology. I will say in the prep call uh, for, for this, this particular conversation, you noted that you're something of a, a technology skeptic, I think is the language that you used um, well, to say more well, about I, your, your interest in technology.
1: Yeah, so um, well, the first example of, and the probably more broadly known example uh, was around was around last mile delivery during the internet bubble. So during my consulting career, I made partner by, by being the taking the lean concept and taking it to supplier relationships. My first book was called "Balance Sourcing: Cooperation and Competition in Supplier Relationships," and it was about the Japanese approach and what was happening in the automotive industry in the eighties and nineties. So not just the lean but what, how you work differently with suppliers uh, in doing this. And again, a balanced approach was the philosophy. And then I had pivoted over during the internet, before the internet bubble in the nineties, got excited about Amazon with some of my colleagues. And actually we did some consulting work for Amazon uh, for free and we were not the low cost bidder. Uh, there was a consulting firm who offered to pay Amazon to let them do work because uh, to get the calls of doing something from the Amazon in the late nineties uh, in the midst of all of the hype and craziness of the internet era bubble, uh, first internet bubble era. Um, so I'd kind of gotten into kind of the operation side of the internet retail. And one of the things that some um, mentees and I were to, to discussing was about these new startups uh, about last mile delivery. There was a, there were three really well-known Webvan was the initial grocery company that went bankrupt. It was um, raised, it was one of the early, went from over less than two years, went from being the superstar to the disaster. Um, and there was Cosmo and Urban Fetch. These were two just last mile delivery companies. People would order online ice cream or something small and they would deliver it um, to your home in, you know, in an hour. Much like Instacart does today, um, but we stepped back and looked at it with a hypothesis that proved untrue, which was that um, we thought it was just there wasn't enough density for multiple players that this could work. But you couldn't have multiple people in the same city because in the economics of delivery, it's delivery density, it's drop size and travel distance. So if everybody's crossing paths with one of us, it's why transportation, uh, FedEx and UPS is kind of a oligopoly because there, if everybody's redundantly going across the same routes. There's a huge amount of inefficiency in that. So we started running the math on it. And what we learned, despite how excited people were about the internet in 2000, that the amount of deliveries that were projected in three years were less than catalog delivery across the United States. So 70, uh, well, I'm going to get my B's in. Uh, yeah, it was Yeah, less than catalog delivery. Like, well, that's not enough to, to fundamentally bring back the milk man and change the economics of this. And we started looking at the different companies and we did densities by different cities and where this could work and where it wouldn't work and um, the drivers of the economics of it. And we wrote an article that uh, my publisher in strategy and business, which was the Booz Allen um, journal called the last mile to nowhere. And um, you know the last paragraph said, this isn't working, this is being overhyped. And, uh, but somebody's gonna figure it out eventually. Now, I didn't know that it would take 20 years to figure it out eventually. And it's still only a marginally profitable area. Um, but it was a, a piece that got picked up by the Wall Street Journal and some others where we were predicting the future. Webvan went bankrupt shortly thereafter and the whole bubble crashed not long after that. So I guess, yes, I've been, I am a technology skeptic in the sense that um, I see things get hyped and overhyped and overpromised without an understanding of the fundamental economics behind something, Uh, just exciting ideas. And if demand is the only variable, that sounds great, but the cost side has to be played in as well, the operation side of it. Um, But the flip side is I am a technological believer about the long-term because of Moore's law and learning curves and experience curves and all these other factors. And some of the things I teach in my operations strategy course you know, over the long term, that economic side can change dramatically, and we can, again, depending on the type of technology and the and what we're discussing, and technology can change things fundamentally to open up things that um, would not have been feasible early on.
0: Well, you've done a lot of writing about internet-based uh, businesses, and you mentioned even just this project that you that you worked on here, last mile delivery. Uh, what's interesting to you about this internet? Uh, commerce e-commerce space
1: um well you you know it's what i like about it is everybody relates to it because every everybody's a consumer and a shopper to some level and so people can understand and it's also fun to bring the classroom for that reason because it's not like oh how many of you know anything about coal mines and no one has any experience in a coal mine how many of you have been shopping in a grocery store and pretty much everybody will check the box so That makes it the fact that it's broadly applicable uh makes of interest to me um and part of it is just over time you you know i do build a reputation of knowing something that first article led to a a company in israel startup that made automatic delivery machines and i worked with them and i've um, i worked with a startup in here in charlottesville that was doing uh called relay uh, foods that was doing um, Kind of pickup and delivery. Uh, and the most recent white papers I published were for a company called Takeoff Technologies that has built um, the technology to do automated picking in the back of a grocery store. So you can take 6,000, you know, small set of the grocery store and a lot of the stuff that people are buying online can get picked now efficiently at 600 items an hour instead of the 60 items an hour of somebody pushing a cart around it, like a crowdsource shopper. So that if you order online, they can have that for pickup or delivery, more economically, and still within the grocery store footprint, and um, and this shared inventory and deliveries. So it's not some distant place with long delivery legs. It's got the shorter delivery to the grocery from a grocery store or a pickup, um, and but it bringing in the automation to do that more cost effectively.
0: It's interesting to think, and I know this is something that comes up in your, your Darden Worldwide course, which we're going to talk about, though, the implications for a technology like that for humans, right? Uh, a person would normally do that job in a robot, do it more efficiently. How do you, how do you think about that?
1: <coughs> well, fortunately, I avoided the um, you know, being heavily involved in the big reengineering terms of consulting during my consulting career, which was mostly about how do you lay off people um I did more stuff with sourcing, and where are we going to factor uh, plants? Now, some of that may have moved to a more global supply base uh that affected people but i have never had a job where I was where I thought the, you know the goal was to get rid of people and the good news about uh the internet retail that we're describing is those are good examples of things that where automation is actually not displacing someone it's displacing an activity that the consumer was doing so if you think about. Used to be you push your cart through the grocery store and you pick all the stuff yourself and then you drive it home. So if now the store is going to pick it and deliver it to your home, you're just you're the automation is taking out what the consumer was doing and the consumer is willing to pay. Right. And that's that is one of the things that I've you know shift over time where I spent a lot of time focused on the economics and the cost drivers, uh, but also balancing those. What's the cost drivers versus the willingness to pay and. People are willing to pay for things that they didn't like doing and automating those things so that it's low cost enough to be able to offer that as a, you know, as a reasonably cost service is a win win uh, for consumers and workers.
0: I'd like to transition to talk about some of the classes that you teach here at Darden. Um, One of them is operations strategy. Um, Tell us a little bit more about this course. What's it all about? Um,
1: so, this is the course that I first started teaching 20 plus years ago under my mentor on Dar- uh, at Darden, a faculty member, um, Ed Davis. And we co taught it as I was learning how to be a, a case room, classroom a professor at Darden. Uh, and it started off with um, kind of 15 cases that were all his, and may- I think maybe one, because I did start, I wrote a case from my consulting experience and came as a guest speaker to some of his classes before I started working on my doctorate. Um, but over time, it's shifted to a full set of, of cases that are my own and an evolving set. Um, this year, for typically the way that the course is designed is also somewhat atypical from some Darwin classes. Week one is more qualitative and big picture. What is an operation strategy? How's that different than strategy? Uh, we're going to open up with a new case on Apple with Tim Cook looking in March of 2023. This is a case I didn't write, but um, it's great because Apple's something everybody follows anyway. Uh, A lot of people follow that are in my classroom. And we're going to use that to discuss how much of the strategic decisions are really, are broadly strategy and how much are operation strategies. What is an operation strategy? Which is not very clear. And then the second day, uh, a former mentee of mine from Booz, who's now at Alex Partners, is coming in with a case that they just finished where they were driving... Uh, productivity across plants, and he's going to put a lens on the execution side of strategy that you got to get the answer right, but how do you actually do stuff? It's not just about making PowerPoint slides or sitting in conference rooms with ideas. Um, Then the next five weeks are two different cases a week um, that are all quantitative because the subtitle of the course is competitive cost analysis. So we're teaching things like uh, experience curves, learning curves, scale and utilization. Those are all Economies of scale is a buzzword people use, but what does that really mean? How do you calculate it? Um, and we use it in context of uh, outsourcing piece. So in a new case this year, well, a new case two years ago is I started using Tesla uh, battery data about Tesla on the cost of batteries and use an experience curve on that to see with the view how much does that actually affect Their overall cost position and if you predicted what would happen with an experience curve what's the slope of it and what do you forecast the 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 demand side will be and where will that drive the cost to and i actually don't use a case i use a technical note on how to do experience curves but then the the discussion is go to wikipedia and read about tesla because all of you probably have read a lot about them anyway this isn't about taking you in some past scene it's trying to take it as a live kind of what i call a live case And I've got another live case on learning curves that, again, this is a newer theme that I've picked up in this course over the last couple of years. And there's a great um, piece that's written by some economists at Uber about the learning curve and how that affects crowdsource workers. And they were exploring why there was a 9% wage rate difference between men and women at Uber, uh, which is common, this wage differential and what's behind it and, one of the answers is the learning curve is a big part of what's behind it. Women had higher turnover and women have been on it longer. And when you have these kinds of jobs where people are doing, you know, in short bursts and not doing it over time and becoming experts at it, the learning curve is going to become even more important than it is when people did, you know, 20 years in the factory doing the same job over and over again. And so it's, I think it's coming back as a new thing to be thinking about uh, more broadly. So I'm Work that into the course, and then there's various other cases that brewery, uh, Three Notch Brewery, which here in Charlottesville I'm an investor in, we do one on economies of scale, um, and then the the I wrap up with um, some guest speakers. I have a uh, rebuild manufacturing, which is uh, a ca- new case we wrote two years ago. Um, Jeff Wilkie, who was a I met when I did the consulting work with Amazon years ago. He was a senior vice president of operations at Amazon. Um, this is a company he started when he retired a year two years ago now uh with from his friends from mit uh and they're trying to bring blue collar jobs back to the u.s um and so we we have a case looking at how do you choose how do you structure the company in different ways and kind of thinking broader about an operation strategy so we, we kind of synthesize at the end and have some painfully hard cases they have to do write-ups of in the five weeks in between. They have to do an individual one and a two-person team write-up as well.
0: What's it like to have a, a guest speaker in a class? So when the protagonist from a case comes and the students can can ask some questions?
1: Well, I, I do that in various different ways. So it's different depending on the guest. Um so the, the new chief of operations for PepsiCo has comes to speak in my, so I have a course called emerging Topics in technology that is just speaker based. So the speakers just take the whole class. And I, I give the students a sign students to do two readings, one on the company and one on the topic, and then let the speaker pretty much run the class. Um, and if it's an outsider, like uh, Greg Roden, uh, he's there and he brings some slides that he would share with the board about what he's doing and, the, you know, transforming PepsiCo in the operations side. Um, on the flip side, if I bring back an an alum, they desperately want to do cold calling because that's one of the things that Darden's known for is getting cold calls, so getting to be the person who cold calls others they're excited about. Um, and then, in my like my digital operations course and operations, so i I like if someone's there to make something uh, tangible. So the wearable robotics, they came in, demoed that in the class, and the protagonist, the, the, case was written, the case was written in a way that other people can use it, and we've got video things that can supplement it, but I wrote it to make it a hands-on experience in the classroom as well. Um, and students get to try on the backpack, the wearable robotics, and lift things, and um, if you have a sense of, frankly, if you have a sense that there are people that spend you know, their days lifting 30 to 40,000 pounds a day. Um, and so they're central presenting. And then I actually have some where I just bring them as a, a subject matter expert, like some of the, my former students. Uh, so my Tesla, Tesla session, I had a student who worked at Tesla. And in the last 15 minutes, he might just join by Zoom and share his thoughts on what did you do well, what were questions, and do some Q&A on it. So there's lots of ways to bring guests into the classroom at Darden between the technology and the uh, the physical side. and Besides the fact that this is a beautiful place to come visit, so it's it's off. It's quite easy to get people to sign up to come to Darden to speak in my classes.
0: We talked about your digital operations class. Um, let's talk about that class because it sounds sounds super interesting. What's this course all about?
1: Um. Well, what I so Darden has the technology and operations management area, um, but there's not a. I.T. systems area like McIntyre, the undergraduate school here at UVA does have kind of an I.T. computer science, that dimension of uh, a functional area of, of management in I.T. So but most of my colleagues have focused more on supply chain like I have in the past. Our new product development is a big part of what we we cover in the technology and operations management area now. Um, but the technology infrastructure uh, is a big piece of this. We had a new course last year that I helped with on the metaverse. And part of this is, you know, we think about it, well, everything's, when everything becomes free and it's virtual and there is no you know variable cost, kind of like the internet when we thought everything was free online and didn't realize you had to deliver stuff and it did take money to get stuff to places. And there were lost economies of scale of shipping, small packages versus truckloads of things. But um, the economics of data centers, these are billion dollar investments. We're getting towards a more decentralized world but you have to understand that the, the data centers that are supporting all this are a huge investment. So, one of my, um, I brought in uh, Jim Miller, uh, whom I met when he was at Amazon, who went to Cisco and then was Senior Vice President of Operations for Google, which sounds like a strange title until you realize they spend a bunch of billion dollars a year building out multi tens of billion dollars a year building out data centers at Google and doing that cost effectively and running those things so they have high uptime and, you know, it, they can provide their services at as lowest cost possible uh, is an important job. So we've had him in the class and he helped me um, provide information that we wrote a technical note on data centers. So the way I run that class this last year and trying to repeat it, it's only the this we've only run it two years. Um, was the first day is all technical notes that we we wrote new because we look at things like Internet of Things are augmented reality and virtual reality are, um, and you look at the published articles, almost all of them are written by people who are passionate believers in that technology. Again, I am a technology skeptic in the short term. And so, for example, um, was it, oh, augmented reality, Michael Porter, the expert in strategy, wrote an article six or seven years ago describing how that was going to be a $70 billion business. That has not been true, or certainly hasn't been true yet. But he, he wrote it wrote it one-sided about, all the potential and not talking about the downsides and the pros and cons. So we went back and we wrote tech notes um, that are kind of telling the pros and cons of everything. And frankly, in the end, we say, and how big this becomes is, frankly, a lot of you are going to be drivers behind that, either as consumers or as business people who are making decisions about whether we invest or not. And so we have technical notes on the different pieces um, to just to make sure people understand the technology infrastructure side of what it takes um to do a lot of the more digital transformation because i 30 40 percent of the work of consulting firms these days is digital transformation that's the new buzzwords kind of re-engineering was in the the 90s digital transformation now what that means is quite variable but we are trying to leverage the digital tools in traditional companies, and what is that, you know, how do we do that well? Uh, and that's this is really not about the strategy side and what is a platform business. that so we talk about some of those things, but kind of what more of the infrastructure is. And then the second day it tends to be cases that are leveraging some of that. So we have um, the Verb Motion Robotics. I also have um, a former mentee of mine, uh, case on. Um, called uh, shift smart so this is a crowdsource company that is really basing it around an operations delivery of different kinds of capabilities to corporate clients and they're treating the employees as they are trying to create full-time jobs for people who don't want or can't just punch the clock uh 40 hours a week and eight hours normal shifts so that flexibility dimension that crowdsourcing provides they're trying to pass that benefit on to the individuals by giving a, a portfolio of different kinds of things they can do. And frankly, you know, tracking, if you show up what you committed to do and you do it well, you will be prioritized for doing other higher paid gigs over time. They do everything from call centers to uh, stocking shelves at uh, circle K convenience stores. So 10% of the hours at circle K now are by these crowdsourced people that the manager of that store just has a slot that says Shift Smart that schedules certain activities to be done. That Shift Smart takes over doing it. And then there's others where they have their mix of full-time people. They're trying to cover the shifts with.
0: That's super interesting. I don't think I realized that. <laughs> I realized that there there was a group out there doing that work. Um, there's a question here in the Q and A that I, I think kind of aligns with your discussion around uh, these data centers. Certainly, data centers big footprint also use a lot of energy and require a lot of a lot of cooling make sure that the servers don't get overheated how does sustainability intersect with your your work and interest in operations is this is this part of something that you look at
1: um well <laughs> yeah and i'll it'll tie back if you get to my questions about book recommendations so my my um my my worldwide Darden worldwide course has been Germany, artificial intelligence, robotics, and technological unemployment, that we then evolved over time to be more about just technology disruptions and climate change is one of those. So I, I do think about uh, the impact of climate change. I also think about, if you think about the data center question you just asked, it's, um, it's much like why Bill Gates wrote a book on climate change is he was about world poverty and ultimately, if all we're gonna do is tell people you can't use elect- you know, electricity uh, because of climate change, then we're gonna keep people in poverty and that's not feasible and that's not appropriate either. So what we have to do is find a way to do energy in a more cost-effective ways. I think the same thing is true of data centers. Um, you know, A large data center is hugely more sustainable and green than People doing it, in corporate corporations doing it at smaller scale. These are people that are experts at it, and they are they can afford to invest and try to find new ways to to do things cost effectively and, and more green energy use. But they're also driving huge amount of demand by providing that. Yeah, I am. Um, uh, so I'm less concerned about them in the sense of supporting augmented reality headsets to help do um, uh, repairs in the field of equipment with young people being able to be coached by a senior person who's now too old old and retired, but very experienced, but doesn't need to be out in the field working on machines. Uh, I'm less worried about data centers to do that. I am more worried that, well, I think 2% of our total uh, energy is going to cryptocurrency. Um, So not so sure that's a good societal uh, trade-off. But I I try not to think about this. So I'm not my job to make, and whether it was my, there is nobody's job and whether we can control that. How the demand side works, I spend more time about how do we help the supply side of making it as cost-effective and green as possible.
0: Another question here in in the Q&A uh, relates to it feels like there's always new technologies popping up and a lot of pressure on companies. Oh, do are we going to get behind this other company's investing in it? Oh, we got to put money here. how do you how do you encourage companies to think about what technologies to pursue or where to put their money, how to evaluate these constantly emerging technologies?
1: Well, again, I am a technology skeptic in the near term and passionate long term. and the the skepticism in the near term, what that leads me to do is what's the problem we're trying to solve? Not, isn't this cool? Can't we go fix something? And um, I mean, AI is now fitting into that, uh, has been a buzzword in big data with clients. But um, stepping back, and oftentimes a simple answer is enough. Uh, too many people are spending too much of their time in corporate headquarters and conference rooms and not out in the field think oh if we could just get real time data to track this and that and we would be able to manage the whole supply chain and you know streamline things and the reality is there's a whole lot of reasons why things don't happen in the field i I'll give a I'll give a real life example of how hard it is to think that you can just automate away human uh, knowledge of things i um i was on a route ride in um with a pepsico driver uh in georgia where i grew up and um i met him at four o'clock in the morning to go out and they're delivering to all the grocery stores and convenience stores the pepsi products for the day and we stop and i'm starting to talk to him he's pumping gas at the f- got loaded up with fill up with gas and he first thing he tells me is you're not from around here you're not from around here are you and i and i said well i grew up like 45 minutes from here back to no one no one claims my accent um, and but we are riding through and you know there are models to give optimal delivery schedules and how to drive. And you've heard of the UPS, turn left, turn right, and all these pieces. And I'm riding along with him to understand how he does it. And you know we think there's, if we could take miles out, that would be both cost improvement and sustainability improvements. If you can cut back on the millions of miles that PepsiCo trucks drive every day kind of view. And so, or not every day. Um, I have to do the numbers, but it's 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 a lot, maybe close to a million. But um, anyway, we're going through and like, wasn't this your first stop? And he's riding by and he's, well, yeah, but the the manager at that store actually has to, the manager has to actually write the, give me a check for this one. This is not an electronic uh, payment system. So I ha- he has to be there and he has a yellow car that's not there. So he's not there. So there's no reason to stop by because he won't, I won't be able to get paid for this. So I should go ahead and I'll skip to the next stop and I can come back on my way back. So he's real time making decisions that are the benefit of the company with knowledge that the routers guys sitting back with their algorithms don't know. Now on the flip side, there are also people who like to go to a certain stop because that's where they got coffee at four o'clock in the morning. And if that's adding an extra 10 miles, that's probably not the right way to do. So finding out, you know, the variance from behaviors that's driven by good intent, that's misunderstood by the algorithms and where it is, you know, I would also say lack of managerial control of helping people understand why it matters that they don't get their coffee at that one spot at four o'clock or figuring out a way to maybe get them coffee at four o'clock in the morning, but still, uh, still make a, an efficient route uh, is a large part of what managers need to do. And um, on the, certainly we're working with frontline employees.
0: Well, uh, let's talk about uh, your emerging topics in technology and operations course, because it feels like I'm a piece with some of the things we've talked about here. Uh, what are some of the topics uh, that you that you typically touch upon or you touched upon recently uh, well, in that course?
1: It it changes every year, um, and part of how I, back to the case development, so that's a speaker-based course, as I describe people, they just come and talk about something, and um, Sometimes I will get them into the studio where studio where I am here, and we'll interview and get some video of them, and then we will write a case. So a good example of one that we did three years ago: one of my former students was in charge of um, the uh, charger network for Rivian, the uh, the kind of truck SUV startup, the electric vehicle startup. And <clears throat> so we wrote a field-based case featuring him that was semi-factual. It was inspired by him, but we didn't use any proprietary data from Rivian. We used publicly available information, but we positioned around uh, him thinking about whether he should put a uh, four-port charger at a, an outdoor spot on the Blue Ridge Parkway, because Rivian has announced they were going to put 500 chargers along the Blue Ridge Parkway, um, or should he put two down in the valley on each side that would be you know, less capacity, but at two different locations at a at a restaurant uh, brewery on one side and another restaurant and next to a restaurant and library on the, the other side of the mountains. And again, it it gave us a chance to teach queuing theory, because how long you have to wait is one of the variables that you think about in deciding how much capacity you have. It also made students step back and think about how do you actually predict the future of the long-term volume of this. Um, but it also re, Reframe the queuing problem to <clears throat> uh, dwell time. It's, it reminds you that electric vehicles are going to be a fundamentally different thing than the way we do gas fueling now. Number one, if you're wealthy enough to have a garage and a, your own home charger, you'll just charge overnight and it's constantly charged unless you go on a long trip. So it's you will never stop by Sheets and run in and get uh, a cup of coffee uh, you know, or donut at the there as you are filling up your gas because. You, you, don't, you don't need to stop there for gas. And then there's others where even if you are trying to do, you know, you're doing, you don't, and you're trying to charge, it's a 20 minute charge. So that's a lot longer than you stop at a grocery, at a convenience store, just our gas station, just to get gas. And how do you think about why you would stop where and what's going to be done with that time? Because queuing, there's a whole math equation about how long it's going to take with random arrivals and service levels, but. You know there's the classic story of how a company was trying to solve the elevator problem of people waiting for elevators because they you know sit there and press the button and get impatient sitting there waiting for an elevator and one of the easy solutions was they put mirrors up so people could look at themselves and distracted them from worrying about how long they were standing there waiting for the elevators. Um, you know Disney's done similar things of entertaining you while you wait in line for rides so you you think about the problem more broadly than just a math problem of you know. What's the forecast of demand? What's the service level? What's the, you know, what's the variation of the random arrivals? All those math things are in there and you need to know those to think about the problem. But you also need to step broadly about what else can I change about this? And I think the Rivian opened up to, you know, something that's really relevant that's come into bear. We're going to have it is going to change the way the infrastructure of uh, gas stations, convenience stores and which is going to affect retailing broadly. All of this is going to play out uh, through a kind of new model as EVs become the dominant equipment.
0: All right. Well, speaking of, of technologies, so let's talk about a course that you've been developing for executive education. Of course, this is the non-degree uh, bearing uh, part of, of Darden. Um, it's a course called Unlocking Value of AI, Blockchain and Digital Assets. Uh, There's a lot of lot of buzzwords there and just uh, one, uh, one title. So um, tell us more about this course. How'd you get involved with it?
1: Well, um, the short title was Web3. And uh, where it comes from is one of my younger colleagues, uh, Denny Kim, uh, who teaches in the strategy area, um, approached me that he had this idea. He wanted to do one on Web3 and particularly on blockchain. He's He is a big blockchain crypto person. And I am a huge skeptic. blockchain and crypto. Um, And we started talking about this and uh, Antrimboer, who's our chief digital learning officer for executive ed, kind of pushed to put us together to come up with something that we're not, it's not really based on, we're trying to kind of break our normal mold. It is not um, a bunch of existing cases that are tried and true that, you know, we taught the Ben and Jerry's case uh, about the the sell to Coca-Cola. And it's a great case, but, you know, we're going to be dealing with things that are happening real time. Uh, You know, just in the last week, um, um, PayPal has come up with a blockchain currency to be used in gaming. So suddenly I'm less skeptical about the fact that as the gaming world comes into play and a metaverse type world would come into play, you know, another currency makes sense versus just as a speculative game that people have been using it so far. But at any rate, Uh, We came up two and a half days. We've kind of framed it as if you have heard about Web3, you've heard about this AI and blockchain in this uh, digital world, um, and everybody around you shares your passion and completely believes that this is going to change the world, don't come to our class. Everything's fine with you. If you're going, if you have that belief and no one's listening to you, maybe you should come to this class. Or if you've just heard some stuff about it and you don't really know what it's about, Come to the class because what we're going to try to do is is look at the business cases of these things and try to understand about the drivers of the both supply and demand side so we'll have um we'll have um we'll be piloting our um darden metaverse uh experience we we have built a metaverse a classroom in the metaverse that you can access to the oculus headsets and by the way if you haven't seen the apple headsets that are planned to come out next year they look pretty phenomenal so there's there's something there that's going a new way to, to interact with uh the world and through the internet. So we got a metaverse, we we open with cryptocurrency, we talk about artificial intelligence. We have another colleague, we have Anton Kornick who is um who teaches the artificial intelligence has been his research, kind of the future of no work is how I like to think about his work. We'll have um uh Lily Ellis, who is um she she does work on um, intellectual property and artificial intelligence. So what Dolly is making, who owns the rights of that, and what ChatGPT is writing. How do you think about intellectual property rights and those pieces? Uh, I'm having a panel via Zoom of a former student, um, Jade Palomino, who is um, – she has been at Meta, and she's been working on wearables at Meta, and now she's joining the Horizon team there about the VR gaming uh, virtual reality gaming. Uh, we'll have a guy from Google that I met through Lily, who has been a software engineer there for for a dozen years, and was in the gaming software development before that. Talking about kind of the metaverse and what what are the possibilities of this, and where where could it go? And then we're going to introduce them to the headsets and let them play with it that night. Uh, as part of the course, and then there's more things on artificial intelligence. There's uh, pieces on data centers and some of the things we've talked about infrastructure as well as the technologies. Um, going through, um, so more, more hands-on demoing and talking, we actually shortened all the classes to only one hour, which is Darden does everything in 85 minutes or 90 minutes. And we said, we got a lot of little stuff. Why don't we just do things for an hour? Um, and so we're doing things a little differently, but, uh, should be fun. It'll be in November.
0: That sounds like awesome. In
1: your, in your area.
0: That's right. That's, that's great. Um, so um, while we're on this topic of courses, let's let's talk about your Dard Worldwide course that um, you you mentioned earlier. Um, and so you've been leading this course for for a number of years. Tell us uh, about the sort of idea behind the course and and what students get to do uh, when they go to Germany with you.
1: Well, I'm going to tie it to the question. You, we run out. You're not going to have the answer. Was my book recommendations is a similar piece. So that course, I have assigned students to choose from eight or nine different science fiction books. Uh, that all are set within the time period of their careers, the next 40 years. <clears throat> and then we read eight chapters out of eight different, eight or nine different nonfiction books on those same subjects. So we're touching everything from <clears throat> climate change to artificial intelligence to gene editing to uh, chips wars and war with, war with China. Um, <clears throat> and then we actually go to, well, we were going to Germany. I'm going to go to Finland, Estonia, uh, next, the next time we do this, um, and you know, try to under, separate the hype from the reality. Uh, again, we were focusing more on AI and just getting a different lens and a view. Germany was very interesting where we started picking the war because uh, when we first went back after COVID, it was right when Ukraine was being uh, invaded by Russia, and also going to Berlin and thinking about you know, reading, you know, visiting concentration camps and bomb shelters and things to understand how devastating war can be, I thought was really important to remind ourselves of. But as an example, you know, three of the books, because also I'm the reading society thing, as you mentioned, was uh, one of the science fiction books was Termination Shock by uh, Neil Stevenson. Um, That one's a little thick, but it's actually quite good. It's a future world of, uh, um, well, business get involved in strange ways. Uh, there's also uh, another book on climate change, the science fiction we assign, And then there's two books that are counter, counter views that are nonfiction. One is the Bill Gates book I mentioned before. And the other is Unsettled by Stephen Coonan, who is kind of a counter. He's not a climate denier, but he is. Uh, um, he has a counter view of, of how much is hype and how much is reality standpoint. And part of what I encourage people in, in looking at the books is think broadly, look at nonfiction and fiction, because it opens your mind up as well. And then in your nonfiction book, look at the person's credit, you know, what's their competency to be talking about this subject? Do they have, and then what's their agenda? What are they trying to to sell? And it's not that you dismiss them if their agenda doesn't align with yours, but just make sure that you realize that's a filter with which they're looking at. And, um, And I think that's true of, you know, Bill Gates is not a climate scientist, so he's bringing a different kind of view on it. But His motivations behind this isn't to make money selling books, it was because he cares about the developing world and how we actually can help raise people out of poverty and still not destroy the planet. The Unsettled book has some pros and cons. He is a scientist, but not a climate scientist. And he did work for Exxon Mobil as well as the Obama administration. So there's lots of different factors to think about, you know, where does he come from and what's he trying to do with this book? so that's that course. And then we visit companies, SAP, we visit Amazon, we go to the port of Hamburg, we go to Volkswagen's biggest automotive rally point. That's where, we, that's where we're doing in Germany. Estonia and Finland is going to be a whole new set of uh, tech companies and different kinds of uh, things to look at.
0: That's great. And we got started just a little bit late here. So we probably got another question or two, hopefully uh, for our attendees. That's okay. And, and hopefully that works all right uh, for, you, for you, Tim. Um, oh, it's fine with me. All right, great. Um, so you mentioned the Darden Reading Society, which you're instrumental in, um, and this is a place for people to come together, talk about uh, a book. Um, it, you know, you're know, you somebody who I know from our prep call, you've had a long, uh, long passion for reading. Um, what's been what's what's the impetus for you know, getting this started? Why do you think this matters in a, in a community like Darden? Uh,
1: well, first anchor, uh, I grew up in the public school systems of Georgia and I can only remember three books I was assigned to read, um, probably Huckleberry Finn, um, To Kill a Mockingbird, and Alas, Babylon, which was uh, an apocalyptic post-nuclear war, because that was what we thought about in those days. Uh, so <laughs> reading classics and catching up on my lack of liberal arts education was a large part of um, my years in consulting. Um, the big step through for me now is that I uh, is auto audio books, audible books, because I'm also a, uh, an avid cyclist and spend a lot of time sitting on bikes. So I listened to 80 books last year. I guess I'm already at 70 something this year, um, thanks to lots of long bike rides and, and basically listen to books most of the time with other free time. And what I do believe is that, you know, it's an opportunity to get lots of different perspectives. Like uh, this set of three, I like to pick multiple books that are coming different points of view to help you try to think through, not just look for someone who's reinforcing your opinions, but how does it challenge it and help you synthesize a different point of view? Um, And I thought um, it was a good way to get people together. Um, And um, we had previously before the pandemic had organized uh, an AI roundtable where we, uh, we met at the Three Notch Brewery here in town. And we talked about what was happening once a month and latest developments in AI. And I mixed um, both people from Darden and people from the community, Anton Kornick and I did. Um, Our our subtitle was AI may make us smarter eventually beer makes us think we're smarter right now. Uh, So there's a social dimension of this stuff, as well as an intellectual dimension. Um, And so I, when we thought about post pandemic, how to get people together again, I thought a book club, well, it was going to be a book club. And then um, my friend, uh, Greg Fairchild wanted to do an an article for the first one of these. And so being very pedantic myself, I had to rename, come up with a new name. So it's a reading society instead of a book club. Uh, But we get together once a month and someone names the book each month and facilitates the conversation. And we're trying to get books that are that are, that someone feels passionate about, uh, ideally not just when they read and be, but that means something to them personally, because it gets us a chance to know that person better. Um, and we've, we've done everything. We've done science fiction, nonfiction. We've done magazine articles as well as books. Um, the most recent was, um, the sixth extinction, I think was our most recent, um, and, um, about humans impact on society and, whether we're driving a sixth extinction in the, in the, in earth, which will include us, which is the scary part. Uh, So that's the purpose of it. We get together. And now at our new forum hotel here in Charlottesville, uh, we can just walk down the Hill and connect down there.
0: All right. A couple of questions from the Q and a here. Um, You mentioned that you're a blockchain skeptic. Uh, What makes you a, a blockchain skeptic?
1: Um. well, Anytime I look at technology, the question is, what problem are we trying to solve? And um, <clears throat> the blockchain that was being used in supply chain—actually, one of my guest speakers has come in—is was my roommate at Georgia Tech, who ran IBM's blockchain initiative with Maersk, the big shipping company. And what he learned is, you know, it really is. There's a lot of people who don't want to share data because that's how they make money, and the ecosystem is. Manic, c- connecting the ecosystem is the bigger problem, not just getting, you know, the data, the, you know, to t- visibility of data, because. It, but it would be a wonderful thing to have more visibility of where everything is. But there's a lot of people who play roles differently. Uh, I think in the monetary side of blockchain, I think smart contracts are probably moving in some way that's going to be solving a real problem. But the, the currency side, again, I partly I'm a, you know, I'm a I'm an old guy, conservative from the south, so I. I haven't given up on the government yet so that I don't trust them to be in charge of monetary that we need. a. am not sure. It's not that I trust government as I trust government as much as I trust some uh, anonymous system of uh, currency, I guess. Um, so, yeah, that's that's a, a skepticism I have on it. I am seeing signs where so in a metaverse and when we have a new kind of currency we need to do things with. There's going to be there's a different kind of play, and I can see it there. I'm not sure in the real world where we're really solving real problems. The financial system is hugely efficient, and so it's not a cost issue. So it is more of a trust issue, but trusting a set of people and an algorithm versus a government or some, some other entity I get my hands around, I'm not clear. I've, I've made that switch. But then again, there are people who didn't, you know, trusted the taxi system and didn't want to do Uber because why would you get in a car from some random person? Uh, well, there's around a random person that's got some checks and balances around it. So maybe I'll be proven. I've been proven wrong on lots of things. So will be.
0: We'll see. You mentioned um, technologies that you're really excited about. Things that you come across in your consulting that that you're really uh, you think. Gosh, this is this is maybe something here.
1: Well, the. I link back to two that I've mentioned in passing and, and because they're both addressing the same issue um, in a way. So the wearable robotics of how do you make jobs better for people on the front end, um, the crowdsourcing one, that's not a new technology at this point, but then the augmented reality headsets is actually a, a use case there where you've got, you know, the experienced maintenance person who used to go out in the field and fix the equipment because as much as we got new technology, it stays out there for 20 to 50 years, <laughs> and somebody has to fix it. And how do we bring a new generation of workers up to speed? <clears throat> AI is not going to solve it. Uh, so that human knowledge, how do we actually leverage that in a in a in a cost-effective and a positive way? So that augmented reality, those these headsets I use in, we just purchased a set for me to use in the class. Um, the a worker in the field can go and look at a big piece of equipment that needs to be repaired. And maybe that typical young apprentice might be able to solve 90% of the stuff, but this is a really hard problem. Someone that's retirement age, sitting back, that did this for years is sitting there watching through the headset and they can put a pin on the equipment and say right here. And actually it uses artificial intelligence to build out um, a 3d image of the space. So just by moving around the headset and builds it out. And so there's a three-dimensional place that they can work from um, in doing communicating. And he can bring up videos into the screen of the augmented reality to say, here's, you know, here's instructions how to fix it. They can also talk it through. So you've got a way to leverage human experience into the frontline because the frontline jobs um, are, are increasingly <clears throat> crowdsourced and low skilled, but um a lot of the skilled things, people are at retirement age. And so how do we actually coach those people as we now bring a new generation in? And technology tools that help us do that are, are something I'm excited about. That
0: sounds sounds very, very interesting. Um, so last question. Uh, one piece of advice that you would share for folks who are looking at Darden, thinking about their MBA, something that you would encourage them to think about on their MBA journeys?
1: Um, yeah, I th- so, main piece of advice is don't just focus on getting into the you know the highest ranked school you can get into. Um, you need to think about what is the community, what's your style of learning, what is uh, what is it you're looking for out of the out of your experience. It is a you know it is a transformative experience to be at the Darden School. It also um, you know I fell in love with this place. So I'm obviously heavily biased but you're gonna spend two years in a small college town in rural Virginia. If you would rather be in New York, Manhattan and just hanging out with your old friends, go to Columbia. I've taught, I've taught at London Business School, Columbia, Tuck, uh, Emory in Atlanta and Vanderbilt and, in, and IESA in Barcelona. And each of those have different, different kinds of vibes and cultures and communities that you're a part of. And what you're going to learn is really important and how you learn in the classroom is different in those different places uh, the case method is very different than lecture based method um but also that community that you're going to be a part of is going to be different um, you, one of the things that makes darden special is that because you're in a small town in the middle of virginia you're, the connections you make with your classmates are tighter here than they are at most schools especially ones in big towns so tuck has that same dimension but not the case method But when I taught at Stern, there were a lot of people that didn't know each other. And Harvard is so big, uh, not everybody knows each other there as well. So you you really get to know the folks here because we're still a moderately sized school, but mostly because your your friends are all somewhere else. (laughs) The people that come here are coming here from somewhere other than Charlottesville, Virginia. And so they're having to make new friends and everybody's in that same common ground. So it's a very transformational experience because of that.
0: Well, Tim, I want to thank you for, for your, your time today. We covered a lot of ground. We talked about a lot of interesting topics. And, and for our attendees, thank you so much for all your questions in the Q&A. We are never able to get to all of them, uh, but so appreciate your engagement, your interest in today's conversation. As I mentioned, we'll share out the recording uh, to this conversation on our admissions podcast, Experience Darden and Exec MBA podcast, as well as on the Discover Darden blog. So stay tuned if you want to go back and review the conversation. And um, thank you all. Hope you have a wonderful weekend. And uh, and a great Friday. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. And that was a conversation with Tim Laster, professor of practice in the technology and operations management area here at the Darden School of Business as part of our ongoing faculty spotlight series, Office Hours. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. We can be reached at Darden, that's D-A-R-D-E-N, at virginia.edu. Till next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.